Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 20th, 2017. This is episode 2047 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Thursday. I mean, it is a time for listener calls. This is where you make your calls to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Or you get on over to the site, and there's a little button there that says Speak Pipe. You can hit that button, and you can leave a message. It'll come to me through the magic of the interwebs. Um, if you use that, you know, you might get lucky and be in a show like today uh, where it's all from Speak Pipe. I realize I have not been showing you guys using Speak Pipe a lot of love lately. So I went in there, and holy crap, there was a whole bunch of stuff in Speak Pipe that I hadn't checked. Uh, so today's show is exclusively from SpeakPipe. That doesn't mean you shouldn't call the Think Line. That just means sometimes I pull more material from one or the other. Another thing you'll hear today, there's a very common web, homesteady, gardeny type thing going on today. That was not by plan. I took these in the order that they came in, with the exception of the last one that I moved to the end, and you'll see why when we get to it. Um, there are some questions that are kind of out of that realm, but most of it all kind of ties in there. Here's what I mean. I have a question on cleaning up an old dump site on a new homestead. I have a question on growing blueberries in pots and transporting them when you get your new homestead. I have a question about Hopi red dye amaranth. I have a question on prioritizing your new homestead projects for initial homestead establishments. See where I'm going here? Yeah, we'll get in the kitchen a little bit, though. I have a question on the storage of bacon grease. I have a question on dealing with wasp things. It's not really about homesteading, but, boy, that happens on homesteads, doesn't it? And then we kind of get off of that realm a little bit for our last two. I have a question in search of an app for podcast note-taking, and I have a question on how cryptocurrency might affect the next financial crisis. Interesting show, great stuff from you guys. We'll cover all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website, at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21, and a dot com. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch, but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, kydex sheaths, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. Next up, let's take a look at this year in history. We are up to the year 29 A.D., and we have one contribution in TSP Wiki today at tspwiki.com. Plans come to fruition. Contributed by David Verne. Tiberius' mother, Livia, has been the only person standing in the way of Sinjanus and his plans to gain more power. She dies this year at the age of 86. Sinjanus is giddy now that he has practically free reign. His main opposition was Agrippa, Agrippina, I'm sorry, who is still claiming that Tiberius had killed her husband and she was trying to get her two oldest sons, Nero and Drusus, named as heirs. Tiberius hated her, and once offered her an apple at a dinner party with her. When she refused, he claimed it was a test and proved she didn't trust him, while she claimed he tried to poison her. 
Sinjanus didn't even need to act on his own, as Tiberius ordered him to get rid of them. Sinjanus gets them tried and convicted on charges of treason without too much trouble. Nero was murdered after the trial, while Agrippina and Drusus are thrown into a prison on the island of Pandaterina, off the coast of Italy. Sinjanus is now completely in control of all contact with Tiberius and plays the 71-year-old emperor's paranoia. Every year, a few men were tried for treason, but now it began to be a daily event. Sinjanus ran the treason trials in the name of protecting Tiberius, but it became clear to everyone that it was a bloody purge of any senator or official he saw as a threat. Sinjanus had finally gained the power he sought after, but several senators, fearing for their lives, began trying to get a message through to Tiberius. My take by David Verne. The treason trials will become a fixture of Tiberius's reign and will be one of the things he is remembered for. In his villa off the island of Capri, his mental state seems to have deteriorated and many rumors have come down through history of his debauchery. Sinjanus uh, has the power to eliminate his enemies, but this will be his undoing. A couple of things here. Um, one of the things I wanted to, I just kind of noted just as I'm reading through this is, um, uh, Tiberius's mother Livia dies at the age of 86. That's interesting because this is supposed to be a time when everybody dies at what, like 14 or something, right? I mean, again, I want to kind of dispel this myth that everybody in the past, before you know, the last hundred years of modern medicine, died in their early 30s or some stupid shit like that. The average age of people, even this long ago almost 2,000 years ago, with nothing approaching modern medicine, if they were well-fed and had decent nutrition and lived in clean conditions, was about the same as it is now. That doesn't mean that modern medicine doesn't help some people who would otherwise die live, because it certainly does. And to say that it doesn't is, is, is a gross misrepresentation. But those are generally things like that diseases and illness that would have killed you. It's not just in general people don't make it to 80 or 90 or 100 years of age without all this modern medicine and drugs and pharmaceutical. It's bullshit. And, and here it is again. The other thing is, so she's 86 and she leaves her son behind as the emperor. He's 71. That means this chick was 15 years old when she had her son, which means she was probably married and betrothed at about 13 or 14. And that's the way things were back then. And we're led to believe it's because why? Because everybody died young. They should be 86 years old. There are a lot of people that do not live to be 86 years old right now. Um, of course, they didn't have processed foods and artificial sweeteners and high fructose corn syrup and glyphosate in their food back then either, didn't they? Did they? Uh, so maybe uh, maybe modern medicine could do more for us if modern nutrition did less to us and if the modern pharmaceutical industry did less to damage us because their goal is to get everybody on something for the rest of their life because that's how they make money. It's my thoughts on that. Um, and then the other thing is how this just continues, like this ancient Rome is just like this incredible soap opera of a struggle for power. And what amazes me is that, again, people were so intent on having full control when, frankly, you're much better off sitting back and being loyal to the guy at the top and not ever being a target. I mean, that, that just seems like, from a standpoint of being happy and having lots of power and lots of money, if that's what you really want, the minute that you became emperor at this time, 
there was like a giant bullseye on you from all directions. Not something that I'd actually want. And this kind of leads me to the fact that I think that we have, we can make a good case that the people that really want total control and total power are psychopaths. Because it's illogical to wish for that. No one should really want that. Then the other thing is they talk, it mentions here about Tiberius's debauchery. I think one of the things that was going on a lot in this time frame with all of these people with a massive power and money is, you know, these guys could have any woman they wanted brought to them. And there was no such thing as protected sex, and no one understood sexually transmitted diseases. And there was syphilis, even if they didn't recognize it as syphilis, that would people would get it, and it would go latent and go dormant for years, and then it comes back with different symptoms late in life. And it leads to something called neurosyphilis, uh, where basically it mimics and in some ways has very similar symptoms to Alzheimer's, but also has like these mad, crazy shit nut job things that it causes people to do. And now you got somebody with limitless power till he dies that's freaking nuts. And I think if we look at a lot of these um, people throughout history that were kings and emperors and very high officials that could kill people at will and shit, and they got crazier and nuttier as they got old, I don't think it was just normal aging. I think there was a lot of you know latent and then recurrent sexually transmitted diseases going on in these people's heads. Because uh, something like syphilis will go dormant, and they might treat you know when it's acute with some you know rudimentary form of medicine, and then when it goes dormant, they think they they, they healed it. I think there's a lot of you know a lot of that type of thing in history. My take by Chad Spirico. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free eBooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free eBooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. And with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take your first call today. This one again is on cleaning up an old dump site on a new homestead. Hey Jack, I'm calling today about a question about, uh, got a property I'm gonna be inheriting within the next five years or so. It's about five acres in Middle Tennessee, and, uh, on this property in the middle of the five acres is a dump site that my family has been dumping and burning trash in for about 25 years now. It's about, probably about 20 foot by 20 foot in the ground. It's all covered up with grass and it's got cane growing out of it, but I know there's a lot of nasty trash in there. And I was wondering if, uh, should I get a dump truck and a backhoe and completely tear all that out? Should I, should I just leave it alone? Or is it going to have any health risks? Uh, with this property, I'm wanting to start up a small homestead and then a market garden. So I really want to know if there's going to be any downsides to me having this massive nasty dump in the middle of the property. Uh, any information you could give for me would help. Uh, thank you very much for your time. 
I mean, that's a huge ass. It depends, right? It, it depends on so many things, right? So one of the things you have to understand, like if you if you take all of that material out of there, you got to get rid of it. So you got to pay somebody to take it. And then the other thing you have to do is you you're going to have a hole. So now you need a lot of good material to bring back in, which is also another expense. Translation, a lot of money and a lot of energy. So we'd like to avoid this or avoid part of this if possible. So the, some of the things I would ask then are what exactly was being dumped. Um, if it was mostly food waste and stuff like that, it's compost. And I, I, I doubt that's what it's, you mentioned, burning. Um, if it was mostly food waste and brush... And things like, you know, old lumber and stuff like that. Yeah, maybe had some nails and stuff in it, but it was mostly wood, which would burn well. Um, then it's probably not that bad. If we're talking plastics and rubber, like tires and milk jugs and stuff like that, then we get into some really icky stuff. If some of that stuff was like from old buildings and stuff and may contain lead or something like that, then we're talking some really icky stuff. Personally, what I would do to make a decision on this is I would take about four or five soil samples from various different uh, areas and depths and have it tested for contaminants and see you know, what you're dealing with to begin with. Because otherwise we're just guessing. But some other things that I would look at. So if you're inheriting this piece of land, you know, is it a small piece of land or a big piece of land? Here's why that matters. It's not a big area. It's not a big area. So if you, know, you could have your market garden and all the things that you want without you know, using that area, then in time, nature heals most wounds. It really does. Now, I would want to get out there with some sort of, uh, you know, maybe a couple commercial dumpsters and some equipment and clean up any big bulk, anything that's going to be in the way, right? Anything that's going to be dangerous, damaging your animals, make it difficult to maintain the area because it's just all grass covered and all. Well, you're going to want to mow that, slash that, whatever, If you're going to want to use that land for grazing or if it's going to get grazed, then you got to think more about remediation. And, uh, again, another thing to, uh, to, to think about with that, again, is getting that soil tested so that we know what we're do dealing with. And if we're taking some remediation steps, uh, then we can, we can start to actually test again and see how that remediation is going. Now, there, there are some plants that we can use that are great for soil remediation. And, again, the area is not that big. Probably the two best annuals that could do a lot to take up a lot of the soil-borne uh, contaminants that are likely there would be Indian mustard, which is a great cold-weather plant, and black oil sunflower, which is a great hot-weather plant. So you can kind of maybe run those, in, especially if you know, you're going to be inheriting it soon. Because uh, I think maybe what I should have said up, up front is you're going to be inheriting in about five years. I guess it's an early inheritance or something like that, planned or what have you. That's great. Um, so the family still has it. So like, stop, stop dumping shit there. Like that's, that's number one. Two, assuming that you can begin remediation now, you know, clear the area, maybe till it, uh, get rid of the, anything bulky in the way that makes working with it difficult and plant it to sunflower. There's still time this year to plant black oil sunflower. Uh, it's a small enough area. You could set up a, a couple sprinklers or two and run a hose out there and water it to get it going. Uh, and then, you know, success it into something like uh, Indian mustard in the fall. Uh, and then maybe plant another Indian mustard crop in the early, early spring, like as early as you possibly can, 
and then go maybe through even two cycles of sunflowers next season. That, that'll do a lot for bioremediation right there. Here's the issue with that. Um, it's like magic, but not quite. The way these plants specifically assist with bioremediation is they take the nastiness up into themselves. Some of it is broken down into lesser parts by the plant, and thereby it renders it less icky. It's a highly technical term, less icky. However, some of it remains. Now, there's a couple approaches you can take. One, you can haul it away and dump it somewhere, okay, um, which is probably best for that piece of soil, the quickest path to, uh, to cleanliness and freedom, I guess you would say. The problem is you've made the problem someone else's. Where did it go? You know, uh, I wouldn't want to feed it to livestock if it were if there was some way to have it processed into like ethanol or something like that or whatever. Fine, I guess, but still, there's a waste product, and that waste product still contains. You see what I'm saying? So another way to do this then is to get you, and you know, for this size area and for this type of plants. You don't need much. I mean, we're talking a, a small chip or shredder like consumer level $600, $800 model and just run it all through there. Um, the, the, the mustard probably could just be mowed or bush hogged, but the black oil sunflower, those stalks are kind of thick by the time they're, they're fully grown. So, you know, chopped and put through a shredder and put right back to the ground and success the next crop and keep doing that. And in, in three, four, five seasons, it'll do a lot to clean things up. Because, again, even though the plant is taking it up, it's going through a bioremediation, breaking down into to less and less damaging things. Like I said, in the end, if you left it alone, in time, nature will fix it. Uh, that's one approach. That might even be a great first step. Then probably the best bioremediation plant on planet Earth is a willow tree. So assuming you, it's wet enough or you can get water to it, I mean, one giant weeping willow will cover that area. And yes, the leaves drop. They have taken things up. But a lot of it's held into the woody parts of the plant. The plant is going to break that down over time. And that would be um, useful as well. The other kind of short-term intermediate fix might be, yeah, you get a, you know, I don't know the backhoe is really the right tool for this. Something more like a bobcat is probably better. Or the front-end loader side of a... A backhoe, but I find a, a, a good bobcat, especially a bobcat, if you can get one that's on tracks, has a lot more ability to scrape than a bucket loader on a backhoe. A bucket loader on a backhoe is good for moving dirt around, not so much for scraping, um, in, in my personal experience. And, you know, a, a truck and haul out, you know, six inches of that, and then bring in soil, and then go through some level of a bio, you know, uh, photosynthetic uh, remediation program. That might accelerate things a bit because, you know, your worst contamination is probably at six inches of soil because most of your annuals aren't going to get much deeper than that anyway. It's, it's a sucky thing. It would have been better not to do it, but I wouldn't stress over it too much. And as long as you're not, like, constantly using that area as a, a source of food, I wouldn't worry about it. Then my other question is, like, where is it in the landscape? There's a tendency for dump sites to be down low because you get to a certain point in the landscape and there's a drop-off, and that's when people throw shit. The good news about that is 
It's not going to create a flow of this ickiness into other parts of your land, though it might into other people's land. Right? But if it's down in a hole, like, and I've seen a lot of these, growing up in Pennsylvania, running the woods all the time as a teenager, you'd inevitably find old home sites. And it was almost always the same thing, even if it had completely grown in. You could see how it was when they settled it. It had probably been logged out as part of early settlement, and there was the piece of land they had was on a hill, Where they put the house? On the top of the hill. And then out the back of what was left of the house, it would go downhill somewhere. And at like a, a fairly low point in the land, there'd be a dump site. Well, if you test it, it ain't that bad. And it's kind of down where you could bring in a lot of fill and level an area and make it nice. Then you, you might just bury it. Again, I would do a soil test to see what you're dealing with. If you have like high levels of lead then you know I'd worry about it. If you have high levels of or moderate, I would say levels of something like cadmium, uh, that's a bad thing. But if you bury it, it ain't. And as long as it's not cycling into some sort of your hydrology or water flow or something, like that, it ain't that big a deal. And the reason it ain't that big a deal is plants in general don't want cadmium, and they're not going to eat your cadmium. They're not going to take it into themselves. They're not going to use it. They're not going to accumulate it. So they're not going to pass it on. Unless you have really high acid rain or really, really high acidic soil, then what can happen is when you have a rain event with a lot of acidity in your soil, then that cadmium can become basically taken up by the acid in the water, and then your plant is kind of forced to drink it. But if you have acid levels that are you know, high enough acid levels, so your pH is down in the neighborhood of like 4%, Then you've got other problems, right? You're probably not doing real well with most plants anyway. So I, I wouldn't worry. I worry as, as scary as it sounds, I'd worry less about that unless it's affecting a water supply than I would about something like lead, which is very likely to be taken up by plants. So I hope that helps you kind of sort through this and gives you a couple different options. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Mark from New Jersey. I have a question on blueberries. What are the best practices? in keeping blueberries in containers. A little background, I went to Lowe's yesterday to get a tomato cage and they had blueberries in pots on sale for $5 each, so I figured I would get two. Uh, they are a Duke and a Ellington blueberry. Um, I kind of want to transplant these into like a bigger pot. Uh, I also know that they need a certain acidic soil. Can you give a recommendation on how to keep the soil to the right acidity and, uh, in general, how to keep them alive while I'm here in New Jersey. So my wife and I are planning to move to Georgia, Georgia next year as part of a walking to freedom type thing, um, and I don't want to plant them. Uh, I would like to bring them with me next year. So any thoughts that you have on this would be great. Thank you for all you do. Appreciate it. Okay, so blueberries, yes, blueberries like acid, acidic soil. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, you know, you're just talking about, you know, kind of the, the extreme end of acid, acidic soil. But what blueberries really can't tolerate is truly alkaline soils. Uh, when you're talking soils with pHs of like 7, 4, 7, 6, 7, 8, which is what's on my property. And I'll tell you what I've learned about blueberries, even with that being the case. They will generally do just fine right up until they're stressed. 
I planted them here in spite of the fact that I thought they would die. And lo and behold, they started blowing up. I got some pretty big plants early in the spring that already, you know, were, were ready to start uh, producing. Put them in the ground. I had blueberries. Then, like, July came. And temperatures went up into the hundreds. And, and they literally looked like somebody had pissed on them every day for, like, three weeks. till like, they just burned up. Like the leaves just turned, no matter how much water they had, no matter how much intermittent shade they had, they just the leaves just like burned, uh, like chemically burned from the alkaline soil combined with the heat. So it's not as complicated as, as it sounds. And the truth is you could probably take any old uh, garden soil mix that you would get, any organic garden soil mix you can get your hands on, throw it in a pot, stick a blueberry in there, it probably do just fine just that way. A little wood mulch on the top and you're good to go. Some things we can do. Uh, one, I would recommend that you use a fertilizer that is an organic fertilizer tailored to azaleas and uh, rhododendrons and maples and things because they're all acid-loving plants. And uh, again, I'm back to one of my favorite producers of uh, organic stuff. If you want to order it you know, on the Internet versus finding something locally, locally Dr. Earth's Acid Lovers Organic. And I'll put a link in the show notes so you can get it. Um, a four-pound bag's about 15 bucks, And for a couple blueberry plants, that'll last you a long time, a very long time. Then the other thing is um, I do have a – Dr. Earth also makes a soil mix. And one-and-a-half cubic feet of this stuff is like 20 bucks. Uh, ordering stuff like that online is generally not the most cost-effective, though it does come with free shipping. You might look around locally to see if there is either the Dr. Earth product itself, and again, I'll link to it in the show notes, or a competitive product that's organic. Um, and even if it's not for, if it doesn't say acid, it says for azaleas, for camillas, for rhododendron. If, if it's marketed that way, it's going to be for acid-loving plants. So you can go that way. Um, creating some acidity in, in, your, in your pots one of the things you could do, New Jersey's full of pine trees, right? So pine needles tend to be acidic. The thing is, a lot of people think that soil under pines is really, really acidic, and sometimes it is over enough time, but not as much as you'd think, because pine needles, once they turn brown, don't really release that much acid anymore. It's when the, when the, when the, the needles are green that they are, are best at producing acidic uh, runoff. So simply, you know, doing something like going out to where pine trees are and getting a couple big handfuls of needles and get yourself a five-gallon bucket and put those green needles into that water and let that sit for a couple days and then using that water to irrigate your plants, you're going to get some you know, acidic water in there, which is going to help with the overall acidity of the entire system. So that's, that's another thing you do. You can just simply adjust down the water that you're irrigating with, again, with a couple plants. If you're trying to do this with an orchard, obviously, this is a pain in the ass. Um, but with a couple plants, you know, you can just use a product like a pH down product for aquarium use and simply adjust your water to like four or five because you're not going to bring the whole soil down to four or five with four or five water. Okay, and then using you know, using a little bit of that, and not watering all the time with it, but maybe once every two weeks, making up a small amount. That'd be another way that you could provide acidity. But it's probably again, I'm saying probably not necessary. Now here's I'm gonna where I give you the part you may not want to hear. Think long and hard before you um, pot up these blueberries, grow them out for a year, 
and move from New Jersey to Georgia with them. Here's why. I did the same thing, not with blueberries, but with other plants, some dwarf peaches and stuff like that, when we knew we were going to be moving to Arkansas. Instead of putting them in the ground, I put them in these big pots. I took care of them. Uh, they're a pain in the ass to transport. They take up a lot of space. You're always afraid you're going to damage them. They don't like being transported. You see what I'm saying here? So you picked up a couple of blueberry plants. I'm going to bet you paid less than 10 bucks a piece for them this time of year. They were probably on clearance. And so now you're going to take a couple of blueberry plants, and let's let's put a, a high-level value on them. Grown out for a year, maybe they're worth $20. Bucks. So we got $40 worth of plants that we're going to put ourselves through hell to move 800 miles to save $40. Bucks. Do we really want to do this? Because I thought it was a good idea until I moved them, you know, 400 miles, and had the it, it was a place I went to all the time, and I had the ability to just throw them in the back of the truck, put a tarp over them, and take them up there. And we went back, like I said, we went back and forth all the time. But then somebody's going to take care of them. So I took them in the colder part of the months, put them in the shade. And it worked, but I was just thinking of all the things that could have fit in that space, especially stackable things, because they're not stackable, when I was doing it. So what did I do when I got there? I planted everything, and when we knew we were going to be moving back, I did not even think about doing something like that again. In fact, anything that was in a pot, either given away, planted in the ground, fed to an animal, or eaten, or gotten rid of. Because all those pots stacked into each other took up one little spot instead of the whole back of a pickup truck. And when I went up, I pretty much took a pickup truck load of plants up. And it, in the end, it worked, but logistically and economically wasn't worth it. Now let's look at this another way. You live in New Jersey. Here's the good news. New Jersey is a fantastic state for blueberries. The, most of the soil around you is acidic. It is a very acidic place. It, 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 slightly acidic soil is good for gardening. Better than slightly alkaline and better than neutral. That's why you live in the garden states. About the only thing New Jersey has going for it is it's easy to grow shit there. Um, so you could use native soil when you plant them and, and lighten it with some perlite and some uh, peat moss. And, and that could be your soil mix if you're still intent on putting these things in a pot. Or you could find a really nice place on your property, plant those blueberries, use some good Dr. Earth's, you know, or other uh, fertilizer, mulch it with pine needles, just mulch it with green, they'll turn brown over time, make it look really, really nice. And when you go to sell your house a year from now, you have two established, beautiful blueberry plants. And they'll probably be worth more to that buyer than they will ever be worth to you one year into it. And I would use them as land, edible landscaping plants to increase the value of your home and increase the likelihood of getting offers from people. And stupid little things like a couple blueberry plants here and a couple raspberry plants there make a person say the magic words in real estate that I hate hearing when I watch real estate shows. I just want to shoot every one of these people in the head when they say this. I can see myself. But when you have a person looking at a property and they say, I can see myself picking blueberries and the girls picking blackberries. When you get them saying that, they want to buy the freaking house. So I'd put them in the ground and I would make them look really, really great and I would love on them. And when you get to Georgia, I'd just buy new plants. Because here's the thing, you have no idea if where you're finally going to settle is going to be a good place and an appropriate climate for blueberries or not. Now, it will be if you do them in containers. That's the beautiful thing about blueberries. The most versatile fruit in the world because you can grow them in containers like gangbusters. 
But even then, if you just buy bigger plants than you have right now and they're already there and you take them home, stick them in a pot and you're done, trust me, trust me, you'll be glad that you did it. With that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Ian in Denton. I have a question for you about Hopi Red Diet Tamarind. I just started growing it for the first time this year. The tallest plant's maybe three foot tall, and some of the leaves are starting to kind of turn greenish color. I don't know if that's just got something to do with the heat or something to do with watering. Uh, any input you can give me, I'd appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Well, there were some fade-outs and background noise there, but I played it anyway because Hopi Red Dye Amaranth is such a great plant, and it's a plant that more people should be growing. It's a plant I haven't grown in a couple of years, and I should be, and I feel stupid for not growing it. Uh, so that's part of why I, I, I put this on. So let's talk about what's going on there and what Hopi Red Dye Amaranth is and how, how big we want this stuff to grow depending on what we want to do with it. First of all, amaranth is a wonderful grain. It is a fantastic, it's not even really a grain, it's like a pseudo-grain. It's a seed. And for people that are on the paleo lifestyle, it's a way to add some grain to your life without it actually being a true grain. It doesn't have many of the, um, the toxic effects of grains like wheat and rye. It doesn't really need fermentation to make it better, and it really doesn't work very well at that. It can be sprouted. And that is a good way to improve the uh, the nutrition value of it. Uh, specifically, just just you know, sprout it as though you were going to you know make beer out of it or something like. That, which, by the way, you can do, but it's not very efficient for it. Um, and it's a great grain, but that is not why we grow Hopi Red Dye Amaranth. If we're taking seed off Hopi Red Dye Amaranth, it's so we can plant it again. It is not, from a seed standpoint, a high production value amaranth. We can look at, you know, like golden amaranth or uh, giant orange or something like that. There's a lot of amaranth plants that one plant can produce as much as a pound of amaranth seed. And if that's what we want, then that's what we probably want to be growing. Okay? Again, I still, I'm not putting this plant down. It's a wonderful plant. I'll tell you all about it in just a second. But now I'm going to say the other side of this. I, I became enamored with amaranth. I thought it was an amazing plant, and it is. And if you have a place and a space for it and you want to grow it, it grows huge and tall. And, boy, it makes a great trellis for you know vining beans and stuff like that. Um, and it's a good product to feed to your livestock. And I think growing it at home is probably the best use for it. For it. What you can do is when it gets its big seed heads on it, you cut them off. And you just hang them up in a barn and let them dry. And you just throw the whole head in with your chickens. And they'll, they'll take care of it. They know what to do because it's a pain in the ass. When you look at what you can buy a couple pounds or more of organically grown amaranth for, it, to me, it's one of those plants that we can grow it for other uses, but if we really want to use a lot of amaranth in our daily lives, same, same thing with quinoa, it's better to buy it unless you're set up to grow and, and, and process it. Okay, So a little on amaranth as a whole there, but it's a fantastic plant, very high in protein, and it's not just the grain that's edible. With Hopi Red Dye, the leaves are edible raw or cooked and stir-fried. It is an incredible green. It's beautiful. And if you take some Hopi Red Dye Amaranth and kind of set it to the side and you do up a stir-fry and you throw that in right at the end, it's it, it not only does it taste good, it makes food look fantastic. It's that bright red color that's in there. And that's what it's best for. When is it best to use it for that? At about 12 inches or shorter. So we grow a whole bunch of it, and we harvest the whole plant cut off at the base. For that use, is the primary use. Okay, that's, that's one great way to use it. Another great way to use it 
is if we if you are a person that does things like breads and tortillas and stuff like that, you make your own. What you can do is you take the larger leaves and dehydrate them and crumble them. And once they're dried out, by volume, it's still something like 30% protein, which is very high for a plant protein. And that mixed in with like corn tortillas and flour tortillas in the into the batter, and then that is a great use for them. And it'll add kind of a, even though it's the leaves, kind of a nuttiness to it. And Hopi Red Dye, good for that too. When it gets bigger, even though the big leaves are kind of tough and don't make as good of a cooking green, what you'll often see is you'll start seeing all these little clusters come off of it, okay? And those clusters are like new little like suckers almost that grow off the middle of the plant. And they'll be small with small leaves and small stems. You can just keep cutting those off and using them the same way. Okay, so that's another way that we can use this plant. And, of course, we can get that seed yield and replant it. And if you get it well-established on your property, a lot of that seed is going to fall and get blown around and stuff like that, and it'll start coming back. It'll start showing up everywhere in future seasons, and you'll be able to harvest it like a weed. And that's great for that, too. So what's going on with the color? Because that's what you really were asking about. This is just what happens with Hopi Red Diamorath. The reason that plant is red is because it's indigenous, and it was cultivated and then brought from its indigenous form to a more refined form, by the Hopi people in the high desert, where it, not the low desert where it's bloodthirsty, dying hot, but up in the cold parts of the desert and the surrounding, you know, um, like Black Oak Canyon area. Uh, if you're familiar with the area like north of Sedona but south of Flagstaff, which is like one of the most gorgeous areas in the world, that's kind of the type of climate that this plant's from. Lots of shade, lots of filtered shade. Cold weather, right? Even down into freezing temperatures, it has to overwinter as a seed and sprout at the right time. And it's coming up in that cold spring, and it needs lots of warmth. So it developed that red characteristic because dark versus light, which one absorbs more heat? Dark. So what happens when we bring it to a place like Texas, we plant it in our spring, we get this gorgeous magenta red plant. And then as it matures and it's got more heat than it needs, remember, for that plant to be able to photosynthesize, it has to have chlorophyll. Right? It has to have, and chlorophyll is green. So the red is the addition of something that overpowers the green. It is not the absence of green. That plant was always green, but if we take green and we, we, we cover it with dark magenta red, we see red, not green. So what the plant does is go, I'm getting more heat than I need, and it drops that pigmentation, revealing its true underlying color. And there's nothing wrong with it. It'll taste just as good as it would otherwise, but it won't look as good, especially in your food and things like that. But again, by the time the plant does that, it's generally pretty large, and you'd only be taking the shoots at that point anyway. So I hope that makes sense. And the kind of the, the message here is plant a shitload of it, and plant it in maybe some this week, some next week, some the week after that. So you have it at that, that 8 to 12 inch height for a very long period of time and let some of it grow tall so that it reseeds itself and you get a seed yield as well. And you can still, again, like I said, use little bits of it mixed in with other greens by cutting those, those young shoots. Because once it gets big and gets kind of stringy, it's just not as good. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. 
Hello, Jack. This is Michael from Monument, Colorado. My question is about setting priorities for a new piece of property. This property is five acres at 7,400 feet above sea level in zone 5B. My goal is to increase our self-reliance and reduce our monthly expenses on groceries. I've been trying to prioritize items and increase learning as we go. I grew up with a garden, but aquaponics, bees, and chickens will be a learning curve. My thinking on priorities is in order seems to be this. Build a greenhouse with about 600 square feet of space for aquaponics. Get, build a chicken hen, um, chicken coop with laying hens. Put in a garden. Uh, get some bees. Uh, we do have a local bee shop and monument. Uh, then planting fruit bushes and fruit trees. What do you think of these priorities, and what would you change? So that's a lot, and overall, I like kind of the, the flow and the layout there. I'm assuming this is happening now or soon to happen. If that's the case, it's, it's impossible to, to argue with the logic of the greenhouse first. Um, if you have gardening experience, you have plant growing experience, and you can grow plants in a greenhouse. With, with 600 square feet, I mean, you're looking at something like a 20 by 30 greenhouse. That's fairly large. You can certainly have plants growing in the ground inside the greenhouse or in raised beds inside the greenhouse. I would definitely recommend setting aside a portion of the greenhouse where you can have some shelving to do your plant starting and things like that. And I would think really hard, though, like, do you really want to go that big? Now, here's two sides of that. Number one, uh, no one ever says, gee, I wish this greenhouse was smaller because I have too much room in here. Never happens. However, uh, what people do end up when people do end up saying that's like, gee, I wish I could keep this greenhouse warmer. So... In your climate, which gets very, very cold, a greenhouse only goes so far. It'll be nice and toasty warm in there during the day. You get wonderful sunshine. There's some things you can do to harvest heat and create heat and thermal batteries in there. But in the end, by morning, most greenhouses end up whatever the temperature is outside. Unless you get like insulated walls, you only have your glass on the on the south and maybe east and west facing sides, partially there. You use reflectors to get as much light in as possible. You have some type of thing where you can close things up. Maybe you're doing a thermal battery. Um, and, and I'll find a video for you on a greenhouse like this that basically you can grow tomatoes right through a Colorado winter in it, but they're going to be small because they're rather expensive to, to, to create. So you do have to think about if you're going to make a greenhouse that big, exactly what it's going to do for you and what its limitations are. And it may just be that it lets you grow cold weather crops way further into the winter than you otherwise could, but at some point eventually, you know, your production stops for the year for a while and it picks back up on the other side. Or it could be that you have that big greenhouse, but you have a subsection of it that can be heated. So that's another thing that you can think about. You can actually, you know, do something like, and if you're going to do this, I wouldn't do like a high tunnel or something. I would do a framed, wood-framed you know, and then use like Tuftex paneling or something greenhouse. And I would close it. If, if the wall's not going to get sun, close it the hell in. You know, maybe put a window in it or something with shutters uh, that are insulated so you can open it in the summer. But close, like, there's no sense in spending money on expensive greenhouse uh, panels when those, no light will ever come through it. So if you look at like video of my greenhouse that we built, The top and the south-facing sections are tough techs, but the bottom, like, two feet are wood because the sun never gets that low. 
The sides are wood and the back is wood and there's some windows in it. So you kind of think about that. But even with that, what you could do is then take an area maybe 10 by 10 where your tenderest stuff needs to be and you could create like a room inside a greenhouse with you know doors that open all the way up and put actual heat in there. And, and maybe you, you put something like a, a, a space propane heater in there with like a, you know, a, a 20-gallon tank on it, and you, you only run it at night during the coldest part of the year at like its lowest possible setting. And, and that'll probably keep everything alive. You can, again, you can do things like build the whole back wall full of you know, black painted pipe full of water. That's going to create another thermal battery. You can build it into the ground. But if it's just going to be a freestanding greenhouse, just know it has limitations. So you might want to think a lot about this design. Why do I say all this? Because, well, you know, I said it's hard to argue with that. You might want to spend the first year figuring out, like, where's the best location for this greenhouse? Does building it into a hillside make more sense? Does building it attached to the house make sense? And really think, because this is a big investment. So you... you Even though I said it's hard to argue with, maybe it's not so hard to argue with. Or maybe we start off with a much smaller greenhouse that can be moved and portable because you're going to have a lot of shit going on. And if nothing else, like then we can use that for our starting plants in the spring and buy, then we can have our, then we can build our greenhouse going through our next year, the, our big greenhouse. So I, that's, I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying that's something to consider. Chickens. Okay. So chickens in your climate are going to need a really good hen house and a really good system, and starting them in winter, I actually like doing that, but I would only do it if you can really make sure you have the infrastructure in place for them. You have to give them water every day, stuff freezes up, etc. Uh, the reason I like starting them, actually kind of right now, is it takes a chicken about 22 weeks to uh, start laying its first egg. If you had baby chickens today, you would expect their first eggs right around Christmas time. 22 weeks from today would actually be our, our, our winter solstice, December 21st. So even starting, you know, chickens in like September, you're looking at February, they're starting to pop eggs out. Well, what most people do is they get their chickens in the early spring, you know, chick days at Tractor Supply and whatnot, like March. And, you know, like, so let's do that calculation. Let's say you get your chickens uh, and they're born on March 15th. You're not seeing an egg till around August 16th. Right? So... You can see kind of the advantage of going ahead and getting your chickens now and getting them, them set up now because that also allows you to do what? To set up a composting process utilizing your chickens so that you have by next season when you're going to be planting your garden and growing stuff in your greenhouse, this really great chicken compost. See how that kind of all fits together. So these are the things kind of to think about there. Overall, If you do things your way, it's not going to be horrible. But I would say get something done before you start the next something. Well, let's talk about bees for a bit. If you are a bee newbie and, and, and you're wanting bees, I would recommend you go back and you listen to the episode we just recently did on whole bees, H-O-L-E, like whole bees, um, which basically leaf, leaf cutting bees and mason bees. And I would start there for your pollination in your garden. Uh, like, I'm going to get my bees and I'm going to plant my fruit trees and my shrubs and all that stuff. Those plants aren't going to need pollination for a couple, three, four years. Do you see where I'm going with that? And that means that if you haven't actually developed a lot of flowering plants on your property, there's not a lot for those bees to work. You're going to have to feed them more. 
And, you know, bees are an animal that's like livestock. And they have to be fed, and it, it takes some time to develop a skill set with. Having a mentor is extremely valuable. And, you know, mason bees and leaf-cutting bees, it's like 15 minutes of work a year versus a couple hours of work a week. And for someone trying to get everything off the ground, and you want pollinators on your property, and we need to be helping these native pollinators, and if you're doing these whole bees and setting up habitat for them, it's very inexpensive, it's very easy to do, it's not much work, you're going to, by the very nature of what you're doing, actually be propagating other native um, bees that use that type of pollination or that type of, uh, of housing. And by setting up different size tubes and all, it's so simple. You set it up, you don't mess with it. Winter, you harvest your cocoons, you put them in the refrigerator. Spring or summer, depending on what kind of bees they are, you put them back out. They do their thing, your colony grows, everything's much easier. So I, I would hang, if, if anything I was going to hang fire on, it would be that setting up honeybees. Um, unless you're really, really into learning the craft. And... Um, The, the good news about that is you ain't doing it till next spring anyway. You, you're not setting up bees right now. I mean, I guess if you have a beekeeper who's willing to sell you an active hive, which you're going to charge a premium for, but generally you get your packages or your nukes or what have you in the spring. That's the only time you get them. There's a very narrow window there. So I would kind of get the homestead buzzing with all of your plantings and everything, and I would actually personally target bees, not for this spring, but for next spring. And I would go ahead, and if you're there already, you can still have time to get over to, uh, again, I'll put a link to that show about whole bees, and, and they have links to their website, and get like the bee chalet and get your leaf-cutting bees set up, and go ahead and order your, your, your mason bees for the spring. And the reason I say to start there is, you give them the habitat, And then pretty much they take care of their own shit. You don't have to, you don't need a bee suit. They don't sting you. You, you don't have to worry about. Pre and it takes a long time, I think, to become good as a beekeeper. And you got all this other stuff to do first. So I would push that to the end. The other reason for that is, you bring bees in, they get up and going fast once you know what you're doing. Okay, a tree. If we don't get the tree in this spring, okay, then that tree lost a year of growth. A year. And it's much easier to go buy a pound of honey than to buy a tree that's a year older and plant it. And I would also say look at planting some trees and stuff like that this fall. Um, I wouldn't do anything that alters your ability to do any kind of you know hardscaping in the future. And I wouldn't get too out of hand with anything. But if you can get some you know good fruit or nut trees that are good for your climate, fall when they're dormant is a wonderful time for planting. And just don't get too you know, worried about how. Plant them. Make sure the root crown's above the ground. Put them in place and let them do their thing. There's a, there's a, a real case for just planting some fr from trees and shrubs and letting them be. They know what to do. Uh, let's take another one. Jack, Erica's recent segment on uh, different cooking oils and whatnot brought up a question. How long does bacon grease or bacon fat, whatever you want to call it, store uh, in the fridge? What I do when I cook bacon, I strain the grease off into a Pyrex container, cover it, and put it into the fridge. And I've had that stuff last well over a year. Um, but I guess the question is just how long is it good for? Uh, my answer to this one on bacon grease is I don't know, but it's a long time. My grandmother <clears throat> had like a stone crock 
that she dumped bacon grease into. And she didn't store it in the refrigerator. It sat next to the stove. And I'll admit it, I have a ceramic uh, crock sitting next to my stove with bacon grease in it. And what will eventually happen is it'll start to not look so good or it'll get some mold on it. And whatever's in there, we throw it in the microwave to, to loosen it up and we dump it out and we start again. And that's what it takes before we do. I've never had bacon grease go rancid on me. I, I know a lot of people say fats and oils go rancid really fast and whatever. I, I just, I just haven't. And I'd say refrigerated, you know, all that gets to where it lasts longer. And I just don't even worry about it. And I don't know if there's any published numbers. And Americans have stopped, you know, fat's evil. And like, you know, most people throw all that wonderful bacon grease away today. Um, I don't do anything except kind of keep an eye on it. If it doesn't look right anymore, I stop using it and start over. And, and I've never really even worried about the shelf life on bacon grease. If there's anybody out there that has like an official number or something like that or uh, best practice other than just keeping it in a, you know, keeping it in a ceramic crock in the refrigerator, um, please let us know. But uh, I, I do the same thing. I looked on Amazon because I want, you know, I had people ask about it for an item of the day review for like a crock with a strainer and all. And in the end, we just went to like the, you know, like like the food, not the food store, like uh, like one of the stores that had like cookery and stuff in it. And we just found this white with a lockdown lid ceramic food grade crock. And I just take a, like the smallest uh, strainer you can get, you know, little colanders like you use to strain spaghetti and stuff like that. Little bitty one, like a little, you know, smaller than a minnow net size. And I just stick that on the top of it and dump my bacon grease in there and throw all of the crumbles away. That's it. That's all I do. And I don't worry about it. I don't think you should either, honestly. And my grandmother, I, I swear to God, I never saw her empty that thing out completely uh, and clean it. And it was there for years, sitting on the side right next to a coal stove. Uh, so I, I, I can't really tell you that there's much different I would do. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Aaron in North Texas, looking for some advice on what to do with a wasp sting. Uh, details a little bit is uh, I'm a landscaper, work outside, and recently um, been getting stung by wasps that are building nests in bushes that I've been trimming. Uh, usually getting it on the hand, but, you know, hands are all blown up, painful, and looking for any advice on what I could do to reduce the swelling and take away some of the pain. I've been using the bone and tissue ointment that you recommend on Amazon, but it doesn't seem to be doing a whole lot. You know, of course, there's Benadryl and Tylenol, but I'd rather not take a whole lot of that. Thanks for any advice. Looking forward to hearing the answer. Okay, so on wasp stings, um, if you if you get wasp or ant bites and you have whole comfrey leaf and you kind of crush that up and rub it on it right at the initial sting, it is helpful. But it's not the best herbal remedy for, for, for wasp, bee, and ant stings. Uh, but again, it can be somewhat helpful and it's better than nothing if that's all that you have. But what makes comfrey so awesome is it's what's called a dermal and tissue regenerator. And what, that's why when you have a really nasty scrape on, on your arm, if you treat half of it with comfrey and half of it you leave untreated, the part you treat will heal so much faster. Because it actually stimulates tissue regeneration. And that's what that Dr. Christopher's product is great for. Bruising, sprains, strains, 
broken bones, abrasions, and scrapes. And we never use comfrey on what, folks? Deep wounds. Not because we're afraid it's going to get in there, but because it's such a good dermal regenerator, it could actually cause the top of the wound to heal before the bottom of the wound and trap infections inside. That's like it's a one danger point there. So it, it's better than nothing, but it's probably not that great for wasp things. Um, the two plants that I've found have the best and fastest reaction that are generally available, like you can usually find them in the field somewhere, uh, or are calendula, and I'm not talking about um, you know, Tagastes marigolds, the marigolds you see around, true marigold, pot marigold, uh, calendula, uh, and uh, even, even better than that is plantain. Plantain, I don't know what it is, but man, that stuff, it has almost an instant... Um, de-inflammatory de uh, action on wash things. I was at Ben Fox quite a few years ago, so five years ago now, and I came walking out of his, uh, his studio and there was a big, huge thing of bee balm and echinacea and stuff like that. Really a gorgeous uh, thing that he had there. And there happened to be some of those the big red wasps, the, the paper wasps. Those things hurt, man. And I happened to brush one with my leg and it stung me in the calf. Um... Low enough down that like you could pull your sock over it, and boy, it, it felt like somebody stuck a hot fire poker in my leg. And I looked, you could see it looked like a nail. Like they leave a hole, man. There's a hole there, big red welt starting and all. And right there in front of me is a patch of plantain. I grabbed about four leaves and kind of macerated them up in my hand so the juice started to flow. Made it like a poultice, stuck it right on the bite, pulled the sock over it like a bandage so it held it on there. Fifteen minutes later, you could barely see it. So. You can either find a product that has a combination of plantain and calendula in it, or you can gather or buy some calendula and plantain and make yourself a salve. And, and that might be something that you really want to do. And to make an herbal salve, again, it's such a simple thing. We take some olive oil, we take a whole bunch of the leaves, we put it in the olive oil, we warm it up to about 150 degrees. You can use, a, if you go to like Goodwill, a lot of times you can find the little mini crock pots. Set that sucker on low and let it sit there for a few hours with the lid on it, right? Or heat it up on a, on a, a stovetop. Don't heat it to boiling. Again, about 150, 160, 170 degrees tops. And then you shut it off and let it soak. Strain it. Put, put it back into the pan or back into your little crock pot. And take a couple chunks of beeswax and put it in there and, and heat it up just really slowly until the beeswax melts. Then pour it into your container and let it get hard. If it's too soft, scrape it out, put it back in, add a little more beeswax, heat it back up. You can let, let it cool in the pan, right? Test it to see if it's about the, the consistency. You do this with any herbs, by the way, that are safe to do it with. To see if it's the consistency you want. And if it is, heat it up and then put it in containers. If it's not, then it's right there to add some more beeswax. Or if it's too hard, you know what to do? Add a little more oil. That's all you got to do. And you don't have to get real fussy about the uh, you know the volumes and all. Basically, I use enough olive oil to cover the plant when I'm making a salve. That's it. Um, another thing that works really fantastic on wasp stings, and a lot of times, like there'll be products like you know Afterbite and stuff like that. If you look, that's what they have at them is uh, witch hazel. And you can buy a big bottle of witch hazel for like a dollar. used for like cleaning and, and stuff like that. And uh, it, it has just almost an immediate uh, effect on the inflammation and bringing down a wasp sting. So what you might want to do then is 
get yourself a small bottle, so, you know, something about the size of like a like a travel shampoo bottle or something like that of witch hazel and some cotton balls, and then a uh, plantain or calendula or plantain and calendula salve. Aloe vera works pretty well too on all stings. So you know, a, a nat, if you can get a uh, product that's a, an aloe vera gel, because you're probably not driving around with an aloe vera plant in your your landscaping uh, truck or whatever. Uh, but if there happens to be one around, that works really well. And then the other thing that works very well and is probably the best first treatment is simply ice. So if you're traveling around doing all of that work, uh, hopefully you have a great big ice-filled water cooler on your truck. So simply having some Ziploc bags and immediately opening that up, throwing some ice in there and putting some ice on that will immediately start to reduce inflammation and thereby pain and itching. Then use your herbal treatment. You might even ice it again after that and go back to what you're doing. Above all, try not to piss the wasps off. But I, I understand what's happening. This time of year, especially, they're really starting to build off their nests. You come by with like a hedge trimmer and, uh, you know, you end up with a really pissed off wasp defending its brood. So we can understand why they're doing what they're doing. So that, that's kind of my best advice in dealing with wasp things. But if I'm in an area where there is a lot of plantain, I'm going to go straight to straight plantain leaf. And, uh, again, I've, I've just always found it to work better than just about anything else other than witch hazel. Witch hazel, again, it's, it's almost like magic when you, when you put just a little bit on some cotton ball, rub it on there. Um, I don't know exactly what's going on biochemically, uh, but it works damn effectively. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. When I'm listening to TSP, I always find myself pausing the podcast to write something down or take notes so that I can go back later and reference something I heard in your podcast. I always have to write down the note, write down what time in the podcast it was, and it's just a big hassle if I'm driving down the road at the time. And I'm wondering if you're aware of a podcast app that has some sort of a note-taking feature built into it. In my mind, when you're listening and you would just hit a button and it would just create a note with the podcast name, episode, the date, the timestamp, things like that, and then allow you to make a note either by typing it or by using the voice-to-text feature. Are you aware of a podcast app that will do something like that? And if not, I wonder if we could ask the audience because I'm sure I'm not the only TSP listener that wishes there was a better way to take notes while listening to TSP. Thanks, Jack. So I, I don't know if anything that does this, but I put it out there in case there is an app and that, that people think would work really well for this. Um, you know, you can suggest it. Um, and I, there may be something, and it may be an app designed for exactly that, or it may be an app that's, uh, that's designed for something else that would work well for that. Personally, what I would do, I don't think you need to know the exact second stamp. You need to kind of know what minutes it's at. I would just pause it and look down and see it's like at 56 minutes, and I would just have you know create a shortcut to the your your voice recorder app. You have it right on the same screen that you have up when you're you know using your 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 podcast app where they put on your if you scroll through put on the first one or make it one of your shortcuts uh, for the voice recorder, and I would just pick it up and say you know Jack was talking about you know, using pine trees for acid uh, acidification of soil at about 40 minutes at 40 minutes in or 42 minutes in whatever and save that app and then go back to it. 
and then just review your own little voice recorded apps. That that if I needed something like that with what I have available to me now, because you're not going to sit and write down stuff. That's what I would do. I I am not the most useful person for things like this because I was the kid in high school that sat there that looked like he was a stoner not taking notes not paying attention I really was paying attention and I didn't need to take notes because I just remember what was said if I was interested in it in any way so when I'm listening to something that I'm interested in there's occasionally like I'm not really I'm kind of spacing out and oh well, what was that and I'll rewind it but if it actually mattered to me I'm going to remember it so I'm not a good resource with you know like the old note taking thing I'm not big on it um, but that's that's the first thing that comes to mind is just using voice memo Anybody that does this and uses anything for it, I know there's a thing called Evernote, but I don't think it really is great for what you're asking. I'm not really sure. I have people recommending it to me all the time. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't do things that way. Um, but I appreciate the recommendation. I just don't. Uh, so anybody that can help this guy out, uh, let us know in the, the uh, comments section of the blog today. Uh, and if you come up with a good solution, I'll put it out in a future episode. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Josh from South Carolina. My question is, what role will cryptocurrencies play in the next financial collapse? Details. In past financial troubles, we've seen uh, run of the banks try and get money out, uh, like in the 1930s. Uh, recently, the head of Germany's central bank stated that cryptocurrencies will make the next financial crisis much worse. Essentially, he was saying that uh, they would have trouble making loans uh, in the future because of the decreased liquidity, I guess, from everybody taking taking their money out and put it into uh, crypto. Um, seems like there's a push to blame crypto for the problem, or at least partial blame, created by the central banks in the first place. Uh, on our side of the pond uh, in America, you have a bill on the Senate floor right now called Combating Money Laundering, Terrorist Financing, and Counterfeiting Act of 2017. Uh, in it, they basically list cash, Bitcoin, prepaid mobile phones, retail gift vouchers, and electronic coupons, all as evil and used by terrorist criminals. I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, but that's kind of what I got from it. Uh, just wondering what your thoughts were on how crypto will play out after slash during the next collapse. Uh, will people see it as a great alternative? It is. Or will government propaganda cause a greater crackdown leading to maybe Zcash, Monero, Zencash, um, Increasing in value or or in importance to us. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Love the show. Bye. Let, let's start off with the second side of this, the second half of that call about the whole. There's a bill before Congress and it lists Bitcoin and it lists gift cards and coupons and all is evil and used by terrorists. No, it doesn't. This is one of the most overblown, overreacted to thing I have ever seen come out of uh, alternative media. Everybody going ape shit about it. Even activists post kind of went ape shit about it. And Vin Armani, who's tied right in with him, came in on one of his shows and just basically tore up his own source and said, "Hey, this is we're overreacting to this." Um, let's talk about this. Is about money laundering. And it, it, in this bill, it lists things like cash and bank accounts and blockchain or cryptocurrency and gift cards as things that are used for money laundering. So here's my question before everybody goes and goes ape shit over that. Are they? And the answer is yes. I mean, do you know what most of the phone scammers are doing right now? And I don't know how the hell anybody falls for this shit. They have these call centers in India. And they have an auto dialer that'll call and say, you, you've, you know, you've received a call from the IRS. Please call us back at. And somebody will answer the phone, like, hello, this is Agent Phil. No shit. I mean, that's how it is. It's ridiculous. And, uh, and they'll try to get you to pay off a debt you supposedly owe with gift cards from like 
Target or like a you know something like that um, over the phone. Go buy the gift card, give them the number. And I guess the fact that they're running entire call centers doing this must mean people do it. And they have, the other one is like the Microsoft scan. You'll be on a website, it'll say, stop, do not restart your computer. Our technicians have detected a virus. And then you'll call and you'll be like, hello, this is Steve from Microsoft. Oh, you're calling about the virus. You know, I mean, seriously. And then they'll be like, you know, uh, you can pay us in Bitcoin or they'll say something like, you know, come on, really? But gift cards is actually the one they're using more than anything else. We take Amazon gift cards here at the Microsoft. Like, come on. So, but this is being done. And drug deals are being made. It's like this stuff's happening. Now, a lot of the stuff that's being done that's illegal fall under what I call a victimless crime. And I think we need to end all of the drug prohibition. Yes, that's I'm a good, solid anarchist there. Yes, I do. But, you know, you also have to look as a pragmatist at what government is trying to do and what you would expect them to do that's reasonable within their own rules and laws and within the, the, the accepted general rules and laws of society. So this bill does not make owning Bitcoin illegal or give the government the ability to seize it just because you have it. And it's also unenforceable. I'm leaving the country. I'm not taking my Bitcoin with me. It doesn't exist with me. I guess if I had a hardware wallet with me, maybe you could make the case that I'm carrying my Bitcoin. But, you know, that's not how... It's, it would be like saying, like, if you have a bank account and you still have access to your bank account, when you go to France, you're taking your money to France. It doesn't work. None of that works. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. So I would just take every bit of concern you have about that bill, and you know I'm the last person to give government a freaking pass, and just don't worry about it. And if you notice, I let this go about three or four weeks, and everybody was flipping their shit about it, and in the last two to three weeks you haven't heard anything about it because it was all a big freaking, what was the, what was the uh, thing, a big nothing burger uh, when the producer was asked about Trump with the, the Russia story. It's a big nothing burger, right, with a side of lies. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't worry about that too much. Now, the core of the question is how will cryptocurrency as a thing affect the next financial crisis? I think that the people that are starting to say this out of the central banks, saying it'll make it worse, they're right. They're right. It will make it worse. And I say good. Because they've created an inflationary system where we have a store of value in a deflationary system, where do you think people are going to go? And it is a much better system for people to move money into and out of in a crisis than gold and silver. Or it is a, yet another option. And some wealthy people, some like billionaire level people are starting to come out and go, yeah, I got some Bitcoin. Yeah, I got some Bitcoin. I can't think of the guy's name, but there's a, a story released today. Some guy that's a multi-billionaire, multi-billionaire investor is like, yeah, I got like, I got like five percent of my my net worth in Bitcoin right now. That's a lot when you're a billionaire, isn't it? So I, I do think that it, it it may make the next financial crisis worse because it will become a place that at least some money runs to. And the problem that the banks have is a liquidity crisis. When people start to take their money, and it doesn't even matter if they take it out, if they move it too swiftly in a, in a different asset allocations, 
then they have a liquidity issue. And that's why, you know, the bailout that everybody was against in, in 08, and on some levels I was as well, but under this system, that's the only thing they could do. They shoved money into the hole until the hole was filled. And then you where'd the money go? It's gone. It went in the hole. It went in the hole. It's gone. It's never coming out. It's just disintegrated. It, it was absorbed by failed debt. It's never coming back. Gone. They created it out of thin air and shoved it into the hole. And they had to do that. Now, do I think it will have as, as, as big of an impact as, as, as uh, I guess it was the chairman of the German Central Bank or European Central Bank said? Uh, probably not. Probably not. Because what people generally do is they run to cash. And in his, historically, people run to the U.S. dollar. When the euro has a crisis, people go into U.S. T-bills. Short term. Medium term. Even if they get negative interest rates, they don't give a shit because the dollar has consistently been the most stable currency out there. Even when it's dropped in value or what have you, it's been the most stable against the other global currencies there's been. That's why we have the most debt of any nation. Because people like holding their money in dollars. And if you're Germany or Australia or Japan or China, you don't hold your money in dollars as in dollars in a bank account. You hold it in U.S. debt instruments, U.S. bonds. That's how you do it. So, eh, I don't know. I'd like to believe that they're completely right, and in the next financial breakdown, people will freak out and haul ass full tilt bore into Bitcoin. Because I'll make lots and lots of money if they do. So it's easy for me, since I want that to be the case, to say that probably will be the case. I think that... You know, kind of in league with our interview yesterday, Bitcoin has a long way to go before it gets enough mainstream acceptance that the average person or the average investor will say, hey, I need to, to as a safeguard, put some money over here right now. The other side of that, though, is, as I keep saying, if 1% of the developed world, the hell with the whole world population, you know, the affluent and middle class parts of China and India, um, Europe, the United States, the you know the, the first world parts of Central and South America, Australia, if 1% of that market says, hey, you know, out of my money that's put away, that's savings, retirement, etc., I should have $1,000 worth of Bitcoin. Holy shit. I'm just saying, holy shit. And again, before you go out and buy $10,000 worth of freaking Bitcoin tomorrow, remember, I'm out until we know what's happening with the soft fork and SegWit and all that other stuff. People are going, Jack, but it's up. Yeah, it's right up where it was when I sold it. Okay? Right now today, it's like right where I sold it. So, okay. You know, we don't know. And I'm telling you, I think, I think people are being set up for a skinning And it may be that nothing bad comes from August 1st at all. And I think even if even if it's not going to happen in, in, in a bad way, everything's going to sail right through and be okay. There's some big fish, some big old whales out there in the investment world that are going to work hard and take short positions specifically to drive down Bitcoin. And they plan to buy on the other side of that short. And I think it's still a small enough market and a small enough market cap that a little bit of coordination like that, I don't think it can suppress it, 
or exaggerate it long term. But fluctuations, baby, they can create them like crazy. And, I mean, if you look at Bitcoin as a whole, it's a trader's dream. It's up and down all the time. You know, take any snapshot in history and look at it over two months. You'll see all kinds of peaks, way more peaks and valleys in there than any stock. And after a time, they become somewhat predictable. So there are people that all they do is buy and sell Bitcoin. They don't, they don't do altcoins. They don't do any of that other shit. They just sit there and go, cash to Bitcoin, Bitcoin to cash. Back. So it's a trader's dream. That's why so many people have gotten into it. Because if you're a trader, you want volatility. If you're a holder, you want long-term linear growth. If you're an investor, you want long-term linear growth. If you're a trader, you want the dips so that you can buy on them and you want the highs so you can sell on them. I'm not a big-time trader, but I understand the mentality of a trader. So that's, that's my assessment of that. With that, we've come to the end of another show. I'd like to thank everybody that submitted content for today's show. I really enjoyed talking about these this very topics today and, and getting deep into some of the homesteading stuff. If you'd like to be on a show like this, remember 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK is the number, or use the speak pipe at the Survival Podcast website. Call from a quiet location, make your point or ask your question up front, then give me the details. You'll be more likely to get through screening and get on the air. That brings us to our YouTube channel of the day. Uh, the channel of the day today is an old one, I, I would say. It's been around a long time. I bet a lot of you already know about it, but it's one I keep coming back to. And I don't think the creator has published a video in over two years. I think he's done and he's left it as kind of, I honestly believe, a masterpiece for bushcrafters, for the preparedness community, for Boy Scouts, you name it. I, I, I think it is. I, I think there are people not doing the same thing because this guy did it tip to tail so beautifully and it's Green Dean and Eat the Weeds. And the reason I decided to feature him today, I have been using the, the ones that you guys have suggested to me. And remember to suggest the channel, send it to jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC YouTube in the subject line. Tell me who, just give me a link to the channel. That's pretty much all I need. Uh, a thought or two if you have any thoughts on them. And they have to have at least a thousand subscribers. So they're established. Um, but I heard about another plant today that was supposedly edible. And it's a plant I have in abundance here. And I didn't know it was edible. So I typed in the name of the plant and the word edible, and what is the first friggin' thing I seen? Eat the weeds, Green Dean, on his blog and his, his videos. And it seems like every single time I find out about a new wild plant or weed or something like that that's edible, and I look it up to learn, like, is it really, and what is it really, and how do you use it, it's always him. And it, what it makes me think is, Jack, you know what you should do? You should take a couple days and go through every damn video, even if you don't watch them. If you like Lamb's Quarters, okay, know that one, skip, go to the next one. Just just page through them and find all the ones you didn't know about and watch them or at least watch parts of them and get the gist of it so you know what else to look for. Because what I realize when I, when I listen to the Green Dean is people, including myself, are walking by edible food all the time. And we're, a lot of times we're purposely growing something that we didn't know was edible. And I love what he calls this itemize. And he has this breakdown of how, you know, we look at what does it look like? What is it, you know, what are its characteristics? Is it growing in the right location? Is it growing at the right time of year for it to be? To make sure we're not eating something we shouldn't be eating. Again, eat the weeds. It's in the uh, show notes today. You can check it out. Uh, again, I really love Green Dean. I actually talked to him a couple times about being on the air. We just could never get it done. 
Next up, remember, whenever you're shopping online, you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do just by going to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Do your online shopping from there. And whenever you do that, you do help Survival Podcast and the work we do. You can get on over to Amazon.com and see their deals of the day. And from there, you can buy anything that you're looking for, and you do help support the show. But I also always review an item of the day. And the item of the day that I have in review for you today is uh, an item that's been up, up a couple times. It's the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. And uh, the reason I have it up is like I check on some of these that are like kind of my favorite to recommend once in a while to check the pricing. And this thing had gone as high as twenty bucks, and it came out like sixteen. But when I first found it, they were twelve bucks. Now twelve bucks for a fifty-one piece high-quality screwdriver set is stupid cheap, and they're back down to twelve bucks, like eleven ninety-five or something like that. And what this is is a little red and black box Winchester logo on the front. I'm sure it's private label from somewhere. And a whole bunch of bits and a screwdriver handle. Of course, Phillips, Torx, you know, hex key, straight, uh, square peg, all that stuff, right? And to me, this is a great thing. It belongs in your gunsmith kit. It's not a high-end gunsmith screwdriver stuff, and I have higher-end screwdrivers that I recommend, you know, for your main gunsmithing kit if you do a lot of gunsmithing. But if you're a tinkerer, you kind of tinker around with guns once in a while, but you don't get serious about it, this will probably do 99% of what you need. But this definitely is like 12 bucks. My God, you put one of these in your range bag. Because sooner or later you're going to need it, or somebody that's out there with you is going to need it. And 12 bucks is cheap insurance. But in the end, it's not gunsmithing that I care about. It's the fact that this will turn stuff that needs to be turned. And, uh, man, this glove box of the truck, guys, you know, uh, maybe your, 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 your bug out kit. I mean, this is, you know, a, a multi tool on steroids, basically. Um, I have I have quite a few of these just kind of located around different places, so there's one close when I need one. Uh, just a great deal, and uh, way too close or way too far out to really be thinking about Christmas yet, but I would say as gifts. Um, these are a great little gift for the handyman type person, whatever. Uh, maybe not the person that you'd want to get a really nice gift for, but the person you just need to get them something. Or the person you get them a really nice gift, but you also want kind of a little, at Christmas time, we call them stocking stuffers, right? Great, great toolkit. Um, let me just give you uh, what's in here. There's um, a 12 flathead bits, 8 hex bits, 4 Phillips bits, 2 extra long Phillips bits, 7 Torx bits, 4 Robinson's bits, 4 tri-wing bits, 3 clutch bits, 3 spline bits, 3 torque bits, and 1 1-inch socket adapter. For 12 bucks? Are you freaking kidding me? If you don't have, you know, kind of a little kit like this in your car uh, or your boat or your your, your, your your travel kit or what have you, pick up one or two of these today. And if you don't pick up this one, find something like it because inevitably it ends up being something we all need. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is like, I love this song and I love this band. And I don't know that I've ever played anything by them before. This was released in 1993. It's called Live It on the Edge by Aerosmith. Um, here's some stuff off of uh, song facts about it. This song talks about how the world is a crazy place but people remain stuck in their routines and refuse to change. According to Aerosmith autobiography, Walk This Way, the song was inspired by the Los Angeles riots of 1992, which took place after white police officers accused of beating a black motorist, Rodney King, were acquitted. Um, I did not know that that's the genesis of, of this song. What I've always liked about this song 
and I've always thought really typifies society is this stanza. If Chicken Little tells you that the sky is falling, even if it wasn't, would you still come crawling? Back again, I bet you would, my friend, again and again and again and again. Chicken Little tells you the sky is falling, even if it wasn't, would you still come crawling? And of course, Chicken Little is not the greatest source of information in the world anyway, if we know that little nursery rhyme, is, is he? Right? And I think this is exactly how society is manipulated by the media. This all in this one little stanza by Aerosmith. Right? They turn the news on and say, oh, you got to be afraid of this. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Like, and a week later, freaking nothing happened in relation to that. And they're scaring the shit out of you about something else. I mean, I talk all the time about politicians being puppets on a string and having the hands of lobbyists and the corporatocracy and the oligarchy up their ass. But the biggest puppets in society is society itself. The people of this country are so pathetically easy to manipulate. Don't be that. Don't be that, man. Living on the edge, you can't help yourself from falling. Yeah, you can. Get off the freaking edge. Take control of your life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Something wrong with the world today I don't know what it is Something's wrong with our eyes We're seeing things in a different way And God knows it ain't His It sure ain't no surprise Yeah, we're living on the edge Wise man by the color of his skin. <laughs>